Hello and welcome to Pod Pod, the podcast all about podcasting, made for podcasters by podcasters and ex-broadcasters. I'm Rihanna Dillon and this week I'm joined by Adam Shepard, editor of Pod Pod, and Gideon Spanier, editor-in-chief of Campaign and editorial director of Pod Pod. Hi to you both, how are you doing? Hello. Very well, thank you. It's feeling springy. <laughs> Excellent. So we are about to toot our own horn a little bit because we have got an award nomination. Woo! Adam, do you want to tell us what this is? <laughs> so this is uh, part of the shortlist for the Publisher Podcast Awards, for which PodPod is shortlisted for the best podcast launch category, which we are very excited about. The Publisher Podcast Awards is, as the name sort of implies, a celebration of podcasting excellence within the publishing and media owner space. So, for example, we are up against, for this particular category, the likes of The New Statesman, The Telegraph and The Evening Standard, among others. Gideon, you're a big boss. You must be thrilled about this. <laughs> well, yes, obviously. I mean, I'm pleased because I think also these awards are recognising that a lot of media brands and companies new and old, you know, with something new like Tortoise or something more uh, established like The Telegraph can innovate. And it's you know, a valuable and important new way to engage audiences. And there are lots of different categories, best political podcast, best B2B, best entertainment and culture, best food and drink. And, you know, when I look at the whole range of podcasts and which happens to be celebrated in these awards, they are audio magazines and we've talked about this in a lot of different episodes of pod pod i think about what alistair campbell talked about way back when we sort of launched this sense that there's a tremendous variety and i think the last thing to say about this from my perspective is these are professional media creators and i really love the fact that there's lots of you know people who can do this from their bedroom or uh, anywhere but this is mainly journalists who are applying their journalistic skills to telling stories in audio. It's a very exciting category to be a part of, especially because we're up against the Radio Times podcast, which was my old stomping ground. So, you know, let the best woman win. (laughs) (laughs) We are also not competing directly against... But in the the same sort of bracket as uh, my old stomping ground as well, IT Pro, uh, who is up for a couple of awards. And I just want to take this time to give just special shout out to Rory Bathgate, who is up for the Publisher Podcast Hero of the Year Award this year, uh, who filled my co-hosting shoes on the podcast when I left around October. So I just want to really really highlight that it's a huge achievement for someone who's been in in that role and you know in media in general for i think less than six months it's very impressive wow incredible and as a quick reminder if you have missed out on a shortlist position for the publisher podcast awards entries are still open for the british podcast awards up until the 18th of may we will put a link to the submission page in the show notes and we would encourage anyone who is interested in getting themselves nominated to get their nominations in as soon as possible 
Adam and I are both kind of buoyed up because we've just come off the back of an interview with the brilliant David Law, who came on to talk all about the tennis podcast. So David Law is a kind of former BBC broadcaster and sports commentator and has done phenomenally well with the tennis podcast, which, as you can imagine, is a podcast about tennis. I do really enjoy podcasts that have names that do exactly what you think it does. So one of the things that we kind of talk about is how he records from all over the world. And uh, I just want to point out that I'm recording in a tiny little airless booth in the BBC. And <laughs> I do apologize for the, for the noise quality because I feel like there's a hum going on. There are footsteps all around me. But as David says, it's all part of the ambiance. <laughs> it's, it's, all, it's all part of the process <laughs> of podcasting. Um, so here he is, David Law, talking about the tennis podcast. David Law, welcome to PodPod. How are you doing? Oh, my pleasure to be with you. I'm, I'm really, really well now that I've finally got over the jet lag of coming back from Australia, which did take me about two weeks. But I, I, don't, I don't expect you to get the violins out for me. <laughs> How long were you there for? And what were you covering? I was there for three and a half weeks. There for the Australian Open, which is the first Grand Slam tennis tournament of the year and one of the big four events. And we went out in force for the tennis podcast, myself and my two co-hosts, Catherine Whitaker and Matt Roberts. And yeah, three and a half weeks in the sunshine, dare I say it? It was very nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one's jealous at all. Um, I really appreciate, though, uh, you chatting to us. I do feel like there's so much to cover with the tennis podcast because you were just saying it's it's been going for over a decade now. So it's really kind of one of the one of the old guard when it comes to podcasts. So tell us how you first started in podcasting, and because you were a broadcaster, of course, initially. Yeah, well, I've been broadcasting for BBC Radio 5 Live on tennis since 2002, so more than 20 years now. Um, but I first heard of podcasts in 2006, I think, when Ricky Gervais started his show. And I think mm. probably that, that stands for, for a lot of us, really, uh, who work in the industry. And I, I just found his show with Carl Pilkington absolutely hilarious. And, and in 2007, I actually started the first podcast I ever worked on for a tennis tournament at the Queen's Club just before Wimbledon, where I was the media director. And I was just fascinated by the medium generally. And so so we, I managed to convince them to run a, a sort of 10-part podcast, talking about the events, the build-up to it, interviewing players, that kind of thing. We did not really know what on earth we were doing. Obviously, back then, you had to download podcasts onto a computer and sync them up to an iPod. I'd forgotten that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't very successful. Not many people were listening to it, but it was my first ever go at it. Um, and and it did not get a recommission the following year. Uh, but the, the truth is that, that that sort of whetted my appetite to want to, to have a podcast one day. But it took several years before I was in a place where I where I understood the technology enough and actually thought that there might be some sort of a, a an interest out there for one. And I mean, I, I always used to think I would have to interview big name guests because the, why would they want to listen to me uh, unless I'm with somebody of note? And it was my co-host, uh, my longtime co-host, Catherine Whitaker, who's been with me from the start on the show. She was working for me at the time. 
and now I'm virtually I'm basically working for her now. Uh, but I mean, she she just said she said the kind of podcasts that she likes to listen to are ones where there are a couple of people or maybe three people talking about a subject on on a regular basis. That's and having some fun, and that's what she liked to listen to. And I, and we went back and forth on this, and and I won for the first six months, and we had we had a big name guest uh, in every single edition. Um, in 2012, and and then I ran out of guests and <laughs> realised, oh, okay, well now what do we do? I, I've I've exhausted my entire contacts book, and she said, well, like I said, I think we should just have a conversation about the sport every week, which is kind of what we did in part two of the show on a, on a weekly basis, and that's what it's ended up growing into. Um, we've it's one of those things because we had such a small audience early on. We got to make all the mistakes that we that yeah. we needed to make in order to get to the sort of format that we now have, and we now have a third voice, which is Matt Roberts, who came on board as an intern with us about eight years ago, and he was he was a student, and he came on to do our social media and that sort of thing. And one day we handed him a mic and asked him a question about tennis, and suddenly everybody loved listening to him rather than us. So um, he's he's become an ever-present for us. He now works for us full-time, and we couldn't do it without him. Was your loyal audience, once they realised that you weren't going to have big hitters, you know, in your words, each week, was that a problem for them? Was there any feedback? Did they really not care? The truth is we, we didn't get that much feedback, really. We, we were learning as we went along. But what we did notice is that as it started to grow, we noticed in our listening figures that more people listened to us having a chat in the pub about what's gone in the, in the tennis world for the last week than if we went and interviewed, I don't know, Carlos Moya. No offence to Carlos Moya. He was our first ever guest in our episode number one, former French Open champion, great guy. But... For whatever reason, people didn't listen to that one anywhere near as much as they listened to us having a chat about what we'd seen on the telly that week on from all around the world on the tennis circuit. I mean, we still do have guests. We've we recently had a, a big interview with Jim Courier when we were in Australia, a former Australian Open champion, and he he was very popular. But really, I think if I think of all the podcasts that I listen to now. Catherine was right. I hate to say it, she was right. I listened to Around the NFL, which is three guys talking about what's gone on in the yeah. NFL all week. I listened to No Laying Up, the golf podcast, where there's five friends in America who have no background at all in the sport other than they love it, and then people loved listening to them. Um, and it's the same all the, way, all the way down, Football Weekly from The Guardian, journalists who, who work in the sport, but... Basically, they're relatable human beings who I enjoy listening to a conversation from. And and I think that that's pretty much what I've found all the way through. And it does appear to be what our listeners appreciate about us. And sorry if this is a silly question, um, but, you know, you are a sports commentator, kind of, over, you cover everything. So why tennis specifically? Was it, was it a gap in the market or was it a real particular passion? It's it's both really, Rihanna. I mean, I, I I have worked in tennis pretty much since I left university, and and I, I I do love all of the sports. I have worked a little bit in football and and things like that, and I've I love football and and, and a lot of other different sports. But tennis is the one where I had a foothold. It's where I had the contacts book that I exhausted within six months. But I mean, the the, the truth is, that's the sport I really know. That's the one I 
I, I am known to work in and I've commentated at Wimbledon for, for 20 years. But, it, but it's also, uh, when I looked around, there were no tennis podcasts. Mm. And that's why we called it the tennis podcast at the time. I mean, and I also thought by giving it that name, we better we better do a decent job of this because otherwise we're, we're selling the listener short by calling mm. it the tennis podcast. And so <laughs> we've, we've been obsessive, quite honestly, for the last 10 years, you know, every single week it's got to go out. And then we started to do them daily at Grand Slam tennis tournaments, which are, as I mentioned earlier, two, three weeks long. And so you're, 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 you're basically committing to a daily show every single night, no matter what time the, the tennis finishes. And and in Australia, there were there was a day that the, the play finished at 4 a.m. We wow. recorded that podcast. We went to bed at 7 a.m. That is what you you what we have committed to and what we make ourselves do because that's the job. That's what the tennis podcast is. It's hopefully something reliable for the listener that if they just want to get up to speed with what's going on and hopefully enjoy the conversation at the same time we're there mm. now that's something i just want to touch on because obviously you've just come back from covering the australian open you do as you mentioned a lot of these international tournaments how do you juggle the time zone difference from a production perspective do you effectively uproot the entire operation and move it to wherever the tournament is? Are you liaising with kind of contacts and extended team members who are back home in the UK while you're at these international matches? How does that work? Does that does that provide challenges or problems that you have to overcome in the process? It, it does. And actually, um, I would say the most challenging period was the pandemic, really, mm. because we weren't able to go on site to these tennis tournaments. I mean, if I give you an example of the Australian Open that has just gone, relatively speaking, that's quite simple to uproot because the truth is we record the show ourselves in person, on site. The three of us are flying out there. I mean, it's a very expensive thing to do, but mm. in terms of the actual logistics of recording it, we're all in the same room every night. We're, we're, we're living together in an Airbnb together. We go to the <laughs> tournament. We go to the press conferences. We ask all the questions of the players, and then we come home and we talk about it. That That's basically what the show is. So there's minimal editing involved. It's just us having a chat for an hour, mm. and then – we produce it, we upload it, and that's that. I mean, there is nobody else that, that we rely on for that process when we're on site. I mean, we do hire somebody, uh, one person back in the UK, one person in the US in order to uh, look after our Twitter feed, for instance, so that we, we have a constant um, flow on there. But I mean, when we were working during the pandemic, during the Grand Slams, the US Open was really difficult because the three of us were in separate locations in the UK. We were doing every show remotely on Zoom uh, and we record locally in order to, to guarantee the quality of it. So we were recording three separate tracks, basically in the middle of the night because the United States was five hours behind us. So they finish a match at midnight that we really feel we need to keep in. That means we're recording at 5 a.m. and we're doing it remotely. We we then sometimes did have an editor to put it all together. But uh, there were several days during the US Open of 2021, the one that uh, Emma Raducanu won, when 
I would go, I would be commentating for the BBC from their Salford studios, go back to the hotel room, record the podcast with Catherine and Matt, and then I'd go and have breakfast before I went to bed. Oof. And and that happened a lot. <laughs> and it's not very good for you, I have to be honest <laughs> with you. But um, still, those are the logistics involved with the on-site or the, the Grand Slam tournament operation. But we only travel to those four Grand Slams, so that's about eight, eight to ten weeks a year. We are actually going, uh, I'll, I'll make you jealous again, we're going to Indian Wells in California in a couple of weeks' time for the event out there. But the rest of it we do as a remote recording. We follow the tours and we do it weekly recording most of the time remotely. So that the, sometimes we have an editor, particularly if we do a more... Uh, elaborate production on something but most of the time the show is the three of us having a chat what happens when there aren't any grand slams what happens when the season is over well the the truth is rihanna tennis season doesn't really end I mean, it's, just, <laughs> it's just that you're not taking much notice of it because a lot of the tournaments aren't that big relatively right. speaking yeah. this year's season started i think on december the 29th of last year oh, wow. and, then it, and then it ended on December the 3rd or something at the end of the year that is what the tennis season is like it's, wow. but it, it follows the sun it goes all around the world following the sun like a big travelling circus it's just that depending on the size of the tournament is how much coverage it gets however we're the tennis podcasts so we're covering all of it um, <laughs> and hopefully people stay with us Do you have like a, a preferred tournament or Grand Slam that you love like kind of hanging out at you know, that has like the best vibe for the three oh. of you. Well, I mean, look, look, I've been working in tennis for more than 20 years and I feel like I finally cracked it because the five tournaments that I go to are the ones I like the most. And that's the Australian Open in January when it's horrible weather here. I go to the French Open in Paris in May. It's lovely. It's springtime in Paris. I go to Wimbledon. Obviously, it's Wimbledon. I go to the US Open in <laughs> September where it's night sessions and it's like Disney World in a sporting environment. <laughs> and now suddenly I've managed to get this gig in March to go to... Indian Wells in California in the desert where there's beautiful mountain ranges and um, yeah hang out there for two weeks so the, the, the truth is they're all brilliant places mm. and they're all very different and I cannot believe my luck mm. so then with all of this travel and that many weeks long runs doing daily podcasts Tell us a little bit about the strain that that puts on you guys from a production perspective. Does does the daily podcast switch over take you a while to kind of get into the swing of when you've been used to doing weekly ones up until then? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I mean, I would say not because when we do the dailies, we are on site. So you're surrounded, you're immersed in this atmosphere and loads and loads of things going on. And there's, they're like four separate Olympics every year in the tennis world. <laughs> in our, in our, and so they're, they're the biggest events. That's why we do them daily. The rest of the year doesn't warrant daily coverage, really. It, it warrants once a week, occasionally twice a week. So at the end of every Grand Slam day, it feels like we've barely got enough time to to fit it all in, to fit all the stuff that we've seen and heard and want to talk about into the show. And we try to keep each show to an hour or less. We don't like to go over if we can. But 
I mean, it's exhilarating, uh, truthfully, Adam, to be on site, to be amongst all these people and, and all these sights and sounds and matches, and you never know where the story's going to come from. So I would say, actually, in a way, it's it's easier because the other thing is I've got a wife and two kids at home, and, and when I go on site to a tennis tournament, I can be utterly selfish and just sort of throw myself into this podcast production and, and all the stories that are there without feeling oh, it's time to pick up the kids or something like that. So um, <laughs> the, the weekly show is, is obviously less taxing because I've only got to do it once a week. Um, but, but I do obviously have a, a life. How did you sort of decide on the content? Because I know, of course, apart from the commentating and the discussion of the sport itself, you also talk about the politics of what's going on in the world of sport. And, you know, you had some incredibly powerful conversations around sexual abuse in tennis and in coaching. So, you know, was that a discussion or was it just like, well, obviously we're going to cover this? Yeah, I think that is something very important to us that if there is something that is heavy and hard hitting within the sport we need to be covering it and mm. the truth is we we're just being ourselves these subjects matter to us as individuals catherine is a is a powerful speaker about the importance of 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 equality and 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 she's made me a better frankly a better feminist uh, mm. by by understanding and listening to her and understand and, and discovering a different way of looking at things these are the conversations we would be having in the pub anyway outrage mm. at a situation or yeah. concern about another situation and therefore that is going to get covered in our podcast and yep sometimes we've had to upset some people by things we've talked about because they're important uh, other times we had the great former player Pam Shriver come to us uh, former doubles partner Martin and Avratilova and tell us she had a story she wanted to tell about having had an inappropriate relationship with her coach who was 35 years her senior throughout most of her late teen and early 20s and she'd never told the story before and she listened to our show and she thought we would help her to tell the story mm. and so that's what we did we want to be that that sort of podcast that can both entertain and make people laugh and feel like good company and, and everything else that, that a podcast does, uh, if, if it's a good one, but also tell some important stories and, and hopefully break some news and lead, lead the agenda if we can. The name, The Tennis Podcast, is such a perfect name for what you do. I mean, it, you, know, you know exactly what it is. How did you manage to get that name? By being first, right. um, in, in truth. It was 2012. I sent a, a message to Catherine, who'd been working for me for about five years. I worked in, as well as my broadcasting, I worked in public relations for tennis tournaments. And she was fresh out of university and working for me. And she'd never done a, a bit of broadcasting in her life before. And I said to her, and I knew she loved podcasts as well. And we listened to, we seemed to just independently listen to all the same stuff or all the same things made us laugh. Um, we would end up comparing notes and we sort of just started to realize we just, we kind of were on the same wavelength about a lot of things, not just working together. And I said, what about we start our own podcast and call it the Tennis Podcast? <laughs> because I'd looked around and I couldn't find that name anywhere. So yeah. um, that's what we did. And, uh, you know, h here we are 10 years later. And as well as the podcast, she has now become 
one of the best sports broadcasters in the country. You know, she is fronting Amazon Prime Video's tennis coverage. She was the, the, the anchor the night that Emma Raducanu won the US Open, you know, on Channel 4 for 11 million people. You know, she's, she's just a brilliant broadcaster. And, and, I mean, I'm really proud that it's the tennis podcast that enabled people to discover that she was – that good and frankly for her to discover that she was that good at it um so yeah it's uh, it's quite a cool story even if i do say so it is fantastic and also the fact that because you do the dailies you are always there for the breaking news as well as you know the kind of general chat so is there a story that you're really particularly proud to have broken because you were there first on the scene so to speak you were there at four in the morning yeah i mean a, a lot of the time when we're on the ground at tournaments like the Grand Slams, we are reacting to what, what's happened. But what we are also able to do, and it's the reason we pay all the money to go on site, is so that we can go in the press conference and be asking the questions of the players immediately after, after they've finished. I mean, Andy Murray did this little press media huddle at 4.30 a.m. the night after he'd finished this match. And, <laughs> yeah. and I was the final question in the huddle. I said to him, Andy, is it about time tennis stopped playing tennis at 4.30 a.m.? And he just, <laughs> he that was like lighting the blue touch paper for him. And he just was off on a rant about what a disgrace it was and how if one of his kids were the ball kids, he would be snapping if they yeah. came home at 5.30 in the morning, stuff like that. So we don't want to just react. We want to be part of the, the news gathering process of being there, being a media on a media member on site and an mm. outlet in our own right. But um, I mean, and, and I would say, just to go back to the Pam Shriver stories, being able to tell a story and, or help her tell her story mm. about what happened to her and, and break that news was, was a very proud moment. I think that's really interesting because while I haven't covered Grand Slams or tennis tournaments, I've gone on site at various international events and conferences. And Rihanna, I'm sure you've you've done similar. And it is always a really special feeling to be able to have that direct access to those people and those kind of leaders in whatever industry it's in. And if you can get out there to ask those questions and be in those rooms. It can be really powerful. I also think it's particularly interesting how you've approached it. I mean, you mentioned it's kind of an expensive endeavor taking all three of you to the other side of the world. And you launched a subscription service in order to help fund that. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about your kind of approach to that subscription play which is something that a lot of other podcasters are actively exploring mm, yeah absolutely well i mean if if i go back to the start and 10 years ago i, I think the first five years of producing this show we made no money at all we we lost money oh wow um and i would have been I bought the equipment that we were using at the time. It's it's a little more sophisticated now than it was then, but it yeah, it was straight out of our pockets in order to fund the show. And my view was always, let's see if we can build an audience. Let's see if mm -hmm. we can make a show that people enjoy. 
And if we can, then maybe we can figure out a way to get it sponsored or I don't know. One of the reasons I called it the Tennis Podcast was I thought, oh, a brand might come in and call themselves the such and such bank tennis podcast. It never ah. happened. Um, so that didn't work. But I mean, that, that, was, that was the initial idea. As it happens, I think the Tennis Podcast as a brand name in its own right is what's become useful to us because that's what people search for when they want to find a podcast about tennis. Um, <laughs> but then about five or six years ago, when we were realizing we're literally making no money at all, um, but we do seem to have an audience that cares about what we're doing now. We're, 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 we're getting emails on a daily basis from people saying how much they enjoy it. And, and I never had that about, say, commentary work for BBC Radio. That, that just doesn't happen. Um, <laughs> maybe it's because it's not very good. Um, but, <laughs> but, be um, it, yeah. but, I mean, the truth is that it's that kind of medium. I'm sure you've heard that from many of your contributors. I, I remember hearing John Sopel talk about mm. it. Alistair Campbell's talked about it, about mm. get kind of the, the connection that, um, that podcasts have with their audience. And we actually, for I think about four years, we ran a Kickstarter on an annual basis to say, right, if we can raise this amount of money, then we can keep the show going weekly and daily during the Grand Slams. That still kind of very much around our other work, but that's what we decided we would do. We'd do a crowdfunding operation. And then a couple of years later, when we first handed Matt Roberts a microphone and everybody loved him, we said, well, if we can raise a bit more, we'll give this guy a job. He can work for us full-time after university. And they hit that target as well. And so we just kept increasing these targets. And then we said, oh, we'll take him to Australia with us if you, if you put in this much. And they did it. Then we got to a point where we thought, we cannot keep asking these people for more money. You know, we the same people. We cannot do that. That's it's not fair on them, um, and it's also just doesn't really feel sustainable. And we we had a lot of chats with other people, and um, some of the people that were the biggest help to us were those that run the cycling podcast. Richard Moore, who sadly passed away a year ago, and who's who was such a great help to me, and and gave me such invaluable advice, and Lionel Bernie, and and they'd got a, a subscription system, a little similar to Patreon, but with a supporting cast, and they heartily recommended them, and they said, look, we think that if you provide something in addition to um, to your regular show people will be more likely to to get behind it. And you're not just constantly having to ask for more money. You're just providing a service. And if people want it, they pay for it. And so that's what we did. And about a year and a half ago, we, we started a, our subscription system called Friends of the Tennis Podcast. Um, and people pay either £5 a month or £50 a year to become a friend of the Tennis Podcast. And for that, we I think we produced last year about 25 to 30 no maybe 30 additional podcasts over the course of the year and that was those were q and a's with us um we, we we run a series called tennis relived in which we we, we go back in time and and cover a story from the past or a, a great match from the past and and that all came from the pandemic when we didn't have tennis for six months and we invented tennis relived as a way to kind of keep going and producing shows about matches that have happened 50 years ago or, or people that have been important and, and, and that sort of thing. But then we also have other 
elevated premium categories. If people want to have a shout out from us on the show, they pay more. If they want to introduce a show and have their name in this kind of opening credits sort of thing. And we've got we've got 50 people a year that, that actually pay for their pet to be our mascot for an episode. <laughs> I mean, that's fantastic. Yeah, and this, uh, that was Catherine's idea. And I said, Catherine, that is never going to happen. <laughs> but sure enough, they sell out every year. We have 50 weekly episodes and 50 people say, I want my pet to be your mascot for that episode. And uh, hypothetically, you know, how much would that cost? Yeah, asking for a friend. Well, uh, all of those 50 went for £200 each. Wow. Um, you know, it's, we do it all through supporting cast. It's all on the public platform there. And then, then there are people who pay more to be our personal mascots. We've got those as well. These are pets, by the way. And, uh, and, and then there's uh, people that can be guest editors of a show. Guest editors? How does that work? I mean, effectively, what the, what they're doing is they're uh, we're presenting them with a few ideas for our Tennis Relived shows, i.e., uh, uh, a study of Monica Seles's career or or Venus Williams or the day that Jimmy Connors reached the semifinals of the US Open age 39 and there are people who love these story ideas and and they'll choose one and then they'll they'll come up with a load of points they would love to see covered in the show or people would they'd love to hear from and then off we go and we we try to speak to people that were were there in the stadium that day or or um commentating or or people who've got memories of it and and, and we also send matt off to uh, he he loves his research so we send him off to the wimbledon library and he just gets his head down and starts reading up on these subjects and uh, and we, we produce, it's kind of like an oral history, I suppose, versions of, of uh, accounts from people that were there on the day, plus our own discoveries as we research them. There are a lot of people that can't or wouldn't want to pay extra money for a podcast or to help a podcast, but there are some people that, that really, it really matters to them. You know, we, we get so many emails really from particularly during the pandemic of people who were going through a tough time and we were part of their company, part of the way of getting through it. And, and I know that that's the case for me with other podcasts. I've, I've felt that I've lent on those voices in my head when I might have been struggling. And the whole business model is one I think of goodwill. It's about we will produce for you on a weekly and a daily basis at the Grand Slams, no matter what. I will be falling asleep on the keyboard, but we will produce this show for you. <laughs> and in return, you help us to do it. Um, and you'll get some stuff extra as well. Are there any of those sort of tears that you regret doing? My husband first started his podcast, he promised to send out a sticker for every UK subscriber. And then he found himself having to write thank you notes on the back of stickers for like months and months and months. Um, has, yeah. has any of it, have you ever kind of overshot that? Well, I tell you, I think that that is a, a very, very valid point. Because I, I remember when we first did our initial Kickstarter um, and we were, you know, you literally trying to think of anything that that people might want. Yes. And 
we'd we'd seen one of the show a year earlier do exactly this thing and i'd kind of watched what they did um and 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 i discovered what not to do as a result of that <laughs> and what i mean look they they did a great job they raised they raised good good funding and they did they they did a brilliant job but one of the things they promised was that they would send a postcard to everybody uh, who paid a certain amount from every grand slam tournament and they were writing, handwriting <laughs> hundreds of postcards and um, sending them from these locations. And some of them weren't getting there. You know, it's not their fault, but they were getting lost in the post and all these sort of things. Um, and, and I just realized, don't sign up to anything that isn't kind of easy to deliver. Mm. And that meant a shout out on the show. Uh Yes, we will let you pay us to have your pet as our mascot. And all that entails is us telling everybody on the podcast that your pet is our mascot. And we will put a picture of your pet in our newsletter that goes out on email. It's not a lot of, not a lot of work for us, really. So we, we very much um, set out to make it as, uh, as labor unintensive as possible. <laughs> That is phenomenal. That is hands down my favourite monetization strategy that I have ever heard. Me too. Um, but speaking of labour intensiveness, one thing that I uh, wanted to touch on, because I am an enormous tech head, I'm really curious about the remote recording equipment that you take when you go to international tournaments. What is in your kit bag? We've all got a Zoom H6 recorder, which is one of these four-channel recorders, so we can have four mics plugged in at any one time. The connoisseur's choice. Yeah, which is pretty much the maximum amount that I think we would typically need. There's three of us. We sometimes have a guest, so we've, we've got four. And then we're using... Bayer Dynamic M58 microphones, which are basically the field microphones I used when I started at the BBC 20 plus years ago. I have no idea if they're the best ones. <laughs> it's the only one I've ever used. And I just, I'm too scared to try anything else. Um, but basically, that that's all we use. And because it's just a, a conversation around a a cafe table or a, or whatever it might be that's then just stuck into the laptop edited on in my case something as simple as audacity uh matt's got slightly more uh editing credentials than me so he'll use audition or something like that um and then that's that and and up it goes fantastic Radio broadcast because you're a radio broadcaster. I'm a radio broadcaster. We've come from that sort of idea of when you're broadcasting, everything has to be silent. I'm in a booth in the BBC right now, and I can hear footsteps outside, and I'm freaking out that you know that's going to come through on mic. <laughs> like it's just so ingrained. Um, with yeah. podcasting, how have you sort of found that transition in terms of being more relaxed when it comes to recordings? Are you you know because you you're never guaranteed a, you know a really silent hotel room or anything, you know, when you're all kind of traveling around the world, you don't necessarily know which locations you're going to be able to record in. So how do you sort of balance that? You know, what is the, the thing that you, you need to have above all else and what can kind of fall by the wayside if necessary? Yeah, I mean, I think general hubbub and sounds of where we are are part of the appeal, in, mm. especially when we're on site at the Grand Slam tournaments. We want people to hear what's going on all around us. And, you know, when we were in New York, um, I remember 
one of the challenges we had there a few years ago, Catherine was presenting the TV coverage as well as doing the podcast. And I remember joining her in her car as she's going back into Manhattan and we would sort of record the first half of the podcast in the car on the way back. And we would tell listeners, we're wow. in the car, we're in the car, we're going over the bridge, yeah. we're going into Manhattan, this is what's happened today, la la la. We'd, we'd pull up outside our hotel, open the, the doors, and suddenly you've got sirens and you've got arguments <laughs> and you can hear, goodness knows what. And we just tell people, this is what's happening. We're, yeah. we're stumbling out the car. Uh, yeah, that, somebody's obviously got in trouble. That's why the police are here. Um, and then we, we decamp into the, the hotel lobby and keep the thing running. And if stuff happens whilst we're recording... It's staying in. Um, I mean, there was one time I think Catherine got stung by a bee live on the show. <laughs> oh, uh, no. which, uh, <laughs> oh, Catherine, that's all right. Initially, I thought she's never going to let me keep this in, but sure, sure enough, she did. Um, so, you know, to me, that's that's part of the um, the appeal is is if you were sitting at the at the picnic table or in the pub with us this is what it'd sound like so that's what you're going to hear what about filming do you ever film any of those bits do you ever have a camera going at the same time uh, honestly we're we're probably a, a few years late with this 10 years in but we're just about starting to realize that that would probably be a good idea <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> look I, i'm quite a traditionalist where it comes to podcasts if you can be a traditionalist after a, 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 about such a new medium but I find it quite hard to get away from the idea of this being an audio medium. This yeah. is the, to me, it's the appeal of it. It's the mm. it's the attraction of it, and it's the it's the flexibility of it. The fact that I can say all all the stuff that we do, whether we're on the we're in a car and we're stumbling out and we're still recording and everything else. I don't think we could do that on camera. Mm. But at the same time, I am aware of the power of YouTube and visual sharing and all that sort of thing so we we need to come up with something that will fulfill that goal as well but i i can't get away from the fact that the reason those that contact us every day do so is because we're in their ears and because the their imagination gets to to play a part in in that experience and i think you do lose something being on camera as mm. a result of that but you know, we're we're trying to trying to do both. Mm. <laughs> is that Matt or Catherine's idea? <laughs> it, it's it it is a realization that we're supposed to be doing it, so we're going to give it a go. Now, one thing I wanted to touch on is we've talked about monetization already through the Friends of the Tennis Podcast subscription scheme, but I wanted to touch on the kind of sponsorship angle because you have of course a number of famous fans uh one of whom is billy jean king who i believe now represents the podcast through her sort of management consulting firm can you tell us a little bit more about that side of the business of the podcast if you like we got to know Billie Jean King about two, two and a half years ago when we, when we realized that she had been introduced to the show herself and had started listening to it. And we'd, we'd been actually trying to ask for an interview with her for a few years without success, because who are we? Um, and then suddenly she discovered the show as a listener and mm. suddenly the doors opened and we managed to get this great interview with her. Um, and, well, we found... 
we found that she was not only listening to every show, she was actually going all the way through the, the back catalogue, oh, wow. which is more than a thousand episodes long. Wow. And she, she reckons she's listened to most, if not all of them now. And as I mentioned, Catherine is a, is a TV presenter herself. We have the podcast and they have uh, a company called Billie Jean King Enterprises, which, which does, has started representing athletes and media people. And we asked for some help because whilst we have managed to get a bit of sponsorship here and there, there's only so much we can do on our own. And obviously, if you call up somebody and say you're Billy King Enterprises, you've got a bit more of a kind of foot in the door than you have if you say, hey, I'm David Law. Can I speak about the tennis podcast? And they say, who? So I don't know who, don't know who you are. Um, so that has led to a sponsorship we currently have with a company called On Location, which is a, a premium travel and hospitality company, which the reason we're going to Indian Wells in California is because they are the official travel operator for that tournament. So they're bringing us there to create podcasts and content at the tournament and show off the place and talk about it. And so they have been our sponsor for the last um, six weeks. They will be for the next few months. But yeah, it is really quite a new thing. I mean, we've only been represented by Billie Jean King Enterprises for the last six months. They're, oh, nice. They're amazing people. What's really nice is we know they genuinely love our show mm. and that they're doing it for that reason and they believe in it. You know, there's there's nothing more to it than that. And we've already seen the difference they can make in terms of just telling people about it. And, and hopefully, hopefully it'll lead to more sponsorship. But... The beauty of having the subscription service Friends of the Tennis podcast at the same time is that we're not reliant on just the one thing. And I'm sure many in the industry have found that you you can't just have one way of making a living from it. Mm. Circling back to what you were saying at the uh, in the beginning when I spoke to you and you said that you were just getting over your jet lag. Do you have any good jet lag tips for some of our, you know, podcast traveller listeners. Oh, Rihanna, I wish I had. I mean, I, I've been travelling to Australia for about 20 years. I am so rubbish at it. Really? I'm not great with sleep at the best of yeah. times because there's always so much to do and there's always so many possibilities and, and my mind's always racing. But I used to think that I didn't need sleep and that I could sort of, you know, work all night and those sort of things. And then uh, and then I discovered uh, that I'd got long COVID about 18 months ago and, uh, oh, and realised that actually... No, that's that's not the greatest idea. You need your sleep, and you need yeah. to you need to avoid jet lag, which uh, in my line of work is not a very possible thing to do. But uh, I don't, in all honesty, Rihanna. I'm sorry mm. to say. That's okay. But actually, John, quickly jumping off the back of that, you know, I was talking today. Someone was asking me about you know what are the pitfalls of being a freelancer, and I was saying you know, you can burn out because you do so much and especially mm. you want to say yes to everything. When you're kind of do, essentially doing your own podcast and that is your, you know, income right now, it sounds like you do everything all the time. Do you burn out? Do you kind of make, how do you ensure that you have downtime? How do you look after yourself sort of mentally and physically? You have to be really careful, I think. And and I've I've heard this from a lot of people in our sort of position and, and I've tried to learn from people who've already done it. I mentioned the, the golf podcast, No Laying Up, 
uh, a little earlier and, and I got to know one of the guys who, who runs that and they all gave up their jobs just the, the same way as I have in order to focus on this and it's it's wonderful it's brilliant we love it but it is absolutely all consuming and if you're not careful you could be working every hour that you are awake yeah. and thinking about it every hour you're awake and, and to be honest I do uh, mm. unless I make something else to do i mean i've got kids so i i go out and i hang out with them and and then the podcast is off limits for a bit but um right. you do have to be really careful and i think you have to you have to build in work practices and and make sure you have certain times of day that you don't work and don't think about it and don't have zoom meetings and and all the rest of it and 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 make sure you have a couple of weeks off and and yeah. and, I, and my two co-hosts matt and Catherine, are they're very attentive where I'm concerned because they realize what I, that I'm somebody who could burn out and could have an issue if I don't just calm down and stop having ideas at 3 a.m. <laughs> so they're, they're constantly on my case about it and trying to pick up the slack from me. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I'm lucky that I work with two people who are great friends of mine who are gen who genuine. We all genuinely care about each other. And, uh, and so we look out out for each other in that way, and 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 that's that's how I avoid it. Really, is mm -hmm. by by having people around me who say, "You need to stop now." <laughs> well, David, you need to stop now. It's the end of the podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. That was brilliant. I loved it. You've kind of really brought us into your world and uh, into the tennis podcast, and it's lovely hearing how passionate you are about it. So, thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Much appreciated. That was genuinely one of my favourite interviews, I think. And I think because David is so passionate about tennis and about podcasting, I think that's what's so lovely. I think they seem to be kind of equal loves in his life, mm. which is always so nice to hear. Adam, I know you were sort of like buzzing as well off the back of this. Why was this such a great one? You know, what kind of tips did he give that you thought really stood out? One of the things that really stuck out to me was their approach to monetization and particularly their sort of flexibility with regards to monetization. The pet sponsorship thing has just absolutely <laughs> killed me. I am deceased. That I, I that never even occurred to me as an option. And I am going to lobby strongly that we should make that part of the pod pod revenue model going forward. Your pet could be the official mascot for pod pod. I, I think that's absolutely fantastic. Um, but aside from the fact that it is downright hilarious, it shows off the kind of flexibility of a subscriptions-based revenue model and the kinds of added value content that you can provide and the, the kind of extra bits that you can offer for additional kind of subscription costs that don't actually, as David was saying, require really any additional legwork. You know, you don't have to offer an extra bonus podcast for subscribers. You don't have to offer kind of a... a separate newsletter it can just be things as simple as shout outs and pet sponsorships i do think this idea of being a friend is an interesting idea particularly for this kind of audience if i can put it like that mm. and uh, i think of what the guardian has achieved with its sort of voluntary membership model mm. and 
you know, it so happens that tennis we know is for better or worse attracts quite a affluent following. Mm. And it, you know, we, we've all know this. It's of the Holy grail of how do you make enough money to sustain what you're doing and ideally be profitable. So uh, I think it's, it's great. Really. Um, I mean, Phil, not that we're going to start asking people to become friends of pod pod, but you know, <laughs> interesting idea. Mm. I'm very happy to nominate my two rabbits, Apollo and Starbuck, to be the show's mascot, though. Fantastic names. Yeah, I'm a sci-fi nerd. What can I say? <laughs> so one one other thing that I really loved hearing about was was the kind of uh, the location stuff and, and hearing just about the sort of tenacity mm. of recording wherever, whatever, whatever time, whatever life work throws at you. Um, they just keep recording and because they know how important it is to have that regularity and those episodes dropping into the feed every single week. Um, I just think that sort of dedication really does really deserves the kind of rewards that they are currently reaping. So it's, you know, you feel really great and happy for them because they're putting so much into podcasting. And I think that can only be a good thing for other people as well. What they're doing is really elevating the medium of podcasting. Yeah, absolutely. It's like gonzo podcasting, almost, that kind of freedom to just keep rolling and bring, you know, bringing what you're experiencing to the audience kind of as close to live and unfiltered and raw as it's possible to get. That's one of the the big appeals with podcasting. And I know it's something that a lot of podcasters do carve offers as bonus content live reactions from stuff you know for example you know we've just come out of the screening for the latest ant-man for example we've literally just walked out of the theater what this made you think of that adam live immediate take i couldn't possibly <laughs> say maybe a, a bus drove past with an advert on the side <laughs> couldn't possibly say disney please don't see me um but it's yeah it, it just that live reaction is something that a lot of people find super engaging and podcasting is something that gives you the ability to do that in ways that i feel like radio hasn't necessarily tapped into and other mediums haven't necessarily tapped into in the same way yeah i do think there is that element of you know the kind of the person on the street doing the vox pops and that sort of like that immediate reaction but actually i don't know that sort of gorilla mm. style podcasting i really enjoyed hearing about that Guerrilla podcasting, I love that. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. And uh, you can find out so much more on podpod.com. Sign up to our daily email bulletins and then follow us on social at podpod official. Never miss an episode by subscribing. And it would be lovely if you could rate and review us as well. We're always very grateful to that. Thank you so much to Adam Shepherd and Gideon Spanier for their invaluable insights as ever and of course to david law for talking all about the tennis podcast pod pod is produced by emma corsham for haymarket business media and i'm your host brianna dillon bye pod, 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 pod.